Welcome to the Do One Better podcast, where every week I focus on philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi, and I hope you'll enjoy the podcast. Keep on listening if you want to improve the world. Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast. I am Alberto Ligi, your host from London. And as you probably know by now, uh, the whole purpose of the podcast is to inspire global listeners to be more philanthropic, to act more sustainably, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. And before we kick things off, I'd really like to encourage everyone to subscribe to the podcast. It makes a huge difference if on iTunes or Spotify you, you subscribe to the podcast. It helps our rankings, and it means we're able to be prominently displayed when somebody's looking for podcasts of this nature, and it means we reach a broader audience and we're able to disseminate this, uh, the great stories from, from our, our guests to a much broader audience. So today, without further ado, I'd really love to introduce our guest, Michael Fagelson. He is the uh, executive director of the Bernard Van Leer Foundation and someone I've known for a few years. Uh, we first met, actually, I think it was at the Bernard Van Leer offices at The Hague uh, back in 2015 or 16 when he was convening a group of really interesting, like-minded foundations focused on early childhood development. And um, and I've always been impressed with the conversations he and I have had and the knowledge he has and the uh, incredibly robust network of consequential leaders in this field who are doing remarkable things to improve the livelihood of children across the world. I will let him introduce himself, but I'll just say that he, he came from the private sector was in McKinsey and Company as a consultant for a while, has been with Bernard Van Leer for over 10 years, I think, since 2007. And like me, he has a daughter who I think is pretty much about the same age as my two little girls, about five years old. Is that right, Michael? Yeah, yeah. She yeah. just turned five uh, in April. Just turned five. Perfect. Uh, so he's joining me. Michael's joining me from Holland. I'm here in London. And the Bernard Van Leer Foundation itself focuses on early years, or early childhood development. Uh, from zero to about eight, and uh, they've been around for over five decades and have uh, invested over 500 million euros, if I'm not mistaken. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule, and welcome on board. Thanks for having me. So tell me a little bit about um, your story and how you got to be where you are today, and uh, and a little bit about your work. So I, I'm uh, originally from New York, New York City, and... After university, as you mentioned, I went into the, the private sector. I was a consultant at McKinsey Company. But before that, I spent one year on something called a Watson Fellowship, mm -hmm. um, which is a, a fellowship that gives about 50 graduates from the United States the opportunity to spend a year outside the country learning about a topic of their choice. And I was doing a piece of work learning about the life histories of people that worked with, with homeless children. So I right. spent the year in equal proportions in, in Mexico, in Romania, and Ghana. And the, the reason for doing this was inspired by some of my experiences in, in a study abroad in South Africa during university. So I actually kind of came back to the United States to work at McKinsey after having this very, very inspiring and intense year around the world and already had this kind of feeling inside that McKinsey might be the anomaly for me, um, not the other way around. Um, but it was a great opportunity, so I started started working there and it was a, a two-year contract, but I got a little bit antsy rather quickly because I was so attached to these experiences I'd had around the world the year before. So uh, around 10, 11 months in, I, I, uh, 
I, I quit um, and I, I went back to Mexico, which was the, the one of the three countries where I really spoke the language very well. Of course, I spoke English from Ghana, but spoke the, the local language very well. And I went down to Chiapas in southern Mexico and found this small nonprofit through the network that I created that was working with kids who'd been displaced by the conflict between the Zapatistas and, and the government at the time. And the, the reason I went down there is I had spent this year learning about people who kind of worked with homeless kids, and then I, I wanted to try it out myself. So I went down there as a volunteer street outreach worker. and That's a big change from the days of McKinsey then. Yeah, I was a, a very big change from the days of McKinsey and also a little bit of a shock to my parents uh, sure. and to many other folks. And in hindsight, people say that felt like a very risky decision at the time. It, it really felt like the only decision that I could make that would make sense. Um, so I spent four or five, four years down there um, in this very small nonprofit, really working on the street with kids and families. And that's where I would say I got most of my training. And uh, there was this foundation that would fund the organization. They'd send people out to, you know, check how we were, how we were doing and how we were using the funds, et cetera. And I remember them sending a guy called Mark uh, Mataheru, and I had the opportunity to take him out and show him some of the work. Um, and he worked for the Bernard Van Leer Foundation. And so that was my first right. uh, contact with this foundation. Thought he had a really interesting job. Went back to graduate school and uh, lo and behold, they, they had a job advertisement when I was finishing up my graduate degree in public policy. And so applied, got the position. Um, yeah. And then, as you said, I've been here for almost 12 years, but in five, five different positions. So started actually in a very similar job to, to Mark and then gradually moved up to, to becoming the executive director about four years ago. Tell, tell me a little bit about the, the work that the foundation does. And I should point out it has such a high profile, particularly in the field of early childhood development, but love to hear about, um, about the work you do, programmatic, advocacy, policy. It's just so much. I think what's special about the foundation is how long it's stuck with this one issue. Sure. Um, so it's actually a uh, it's a 70-year-old foundation, but the decision to focus on early childhood really came in the early 1960s. So that's, you know, running up against 60 years. You know, it was started after the, the Second World War, just after 1949, and, and sort of seeing through the war what, you know, human beings can, can do to one another, inspired by some of the philanthropic enterprise in the U.S. in particular. Uh, Bernard Van Leer decides, you know, I want the profit bits of my packaging company to go to help humanity. And it had a kind of broad, very broad mission for a while. And then he, he passed away in the, in the 50s and his son Oscar took over and he's the one who sort of found this focus. Uh, it took about six, seven years for him to find the focus. Mm -hmm. um, and the story is that he was on a plane and reading a report um, about some early work in the United States by a psychologist called uh, Martin Deutsch, who was noticing that kids were coming to school from low-income families, and they were kind of already behind their peers and wondering, you know, is there something we could do earlier to put them on equal footing? That was the inspiration, and I think it appealed to him both because uh, he believed in fairness, everybody getting a fair chance, but from a, a business standpoint, he thought it was a very elegant idea that you could make small changes early in someone's life and then dramatically alter their future, and that that was a way to change society. So at the time, it was kind of a hypothesis. Um, there wasn't the kind of evidence that we have today. And in fact, if you look back uh, at the period 
there's this sense that we were a bit of an outlier in the right. way the, the, the board describes what we're doing. A lot of people thinking, you know, why are you focused on, on the youngest kids? You know, there's, there's really nothing going on in their, their brains. They're kind of uh, living in a total buzz of confusion. And then fast forward, you know, about 50 years, a little bit less, and suddenly you're hearing uh, a very different story. People saying, actually, they're the smartest people on the planet. And that's really changed the, the field that we work in. Um, that along with a number of other factors where there's just a ton of energy and people really understanding um, that babies and toddlers are incredibly able in terms of their ability to process information and and to learn and that a lot of what what happens in their early experiences set the foundation for future health for the the way that they learn even things uh, like the kind of incomes that they will have when they're older. And so that's really changed kind of what needs to be done to have an impact. It's a, it's a little bit less about convincing uh, uh, people and a little bit more about helping people who want to take large-scale action figure out the best way to do so. And so that's a lot of what the foundation focuses on today. Because back in the 60s, you would have been pretty much on your own, I think, right? They're they're uh, they're not entirely on our own, but but yes, uh, I I mean there was an emerging movement in the United States around Head Start at the time. It was part of you know the, the civil rights movement and and, and Lyndon Johnson's presidency. Um, there was actually some interesting work going on um, in Russia around the same period, kind of thinking differently about how kids develop. But yes, there was this sense that you know there were people here and there who had this notion of an idea um, but they were they were islands in and of themselves and in fact 1971 the foundation uh, decided to start writing a newsletter to connect these people mm-hmm. um, because there was no uh, vehicle or platform that they could see to for them to to converse and to understand what others were doing but yeah i think it was a very lonely enterprise at the time very different from today and today not only not only are there a lot of stakeholders coming into the fold but you know, you have great economic arguments, great neuroscientific arguments to you know substantiate the things you're you're looking to drive forward. One of the things I I kept on coming uh, into quite a bit when I was uh, when I was running Novak Djokovic Foundation was the tension between scalability and high quality, and how that's a sort of perennial problem that a lot of people in the early childhood development field face. And I'd love to hear a little bit about the work that you guys are doing to help well-meaning foundations embrace best practice and scale that up, but also in terms of the theme of that tension between high quality and uh, and scalability. I mean, I think that, that that's a theme not in early childhood development, but in anything, mm-hmm. uh, anything that gets big, right? Any business uh, that's scaling is concerned about you know, product quality, um, uh, quality of customer service. If you're working in healthcare, if you're working in jobs, basically anything that gets really big, really fast, you start to worry about that. So I, I, I would, I, I think it's a, a general theme in life, in business, in philanthropy, and almost everything. So my personal point of view on it is that this field of work has a ton of energy and many, many good examples at a small scale. And really needs to be pushing the boundaries on on how to do this at massive scale, hundreds mm-hmm. of thousands, millions of kids. And so, although some people don't 
don't like it, I, I think that that means at times, if you want to maintain the quality, abandoning the totally holistic approach. Because if you think about really large systems of service delivery, a national healthcare system, a national preschool system, and you want it to incorporate new elements, yeah. um, it has to be relatively simple. And sometimes I think that we get bogged down in in, in complexity, and, and, and that can stop us from making a, a real push to scale. So perhaps sort of the, the the best example of this at the moment for me is an initiative in Brazil mm-hmm. um, with, uh, with the government of Brazil and another foundation. The foundation is called Fundação Maria Cecilia Salto Vidigal. And then the government is personified in a guy called Osmar Terra, who's uh, currently the Minister of Citizenship and is a longtime champion for this and a longtime ally of the foundation. And Osmar said, uh, we'd been working on these home visiting programs for a long time, um, like where somebody will visit the, the home when, when the woman's pregnant and after and provide some coaching about child development. And, he, you know, he came to us and said, um, I really want to do this at a completely different scale. I want to reach all 3.7 million kids who are, whose families are getting a, a cash transfer. So the poorest kids in the country under three. And he said, we need to move quickly in order to um, take advantage of the window, uh, political window of opportunity mm-hmm. that he had at the time. And so he asked us for some support where, where the government was going to pay for the bulk of the program. But we, along with Fundasau, were going to provide resources to help move, move quickly and to, to do what was possible to make sure that the funds were spent in the highest impact way possible. And so this over the last 24 months, this program has scaled up to about 600,000 of those 3.7 million families. Incredible. Um, and, you know, it's on track to be uh, towards a million at the end of the year. And, and there are all sorts of problems with quality. I mean, and we're aware of them. Mm-hmm. Um, there are problems with following the, the curriculum or rotation of the home visitors or the supervisors. I mean... Every kind of management challenge you can possibly imagine. However, I think it was a really good decision to go fast and go for scale and to work on quality in the meantime. Um, Because what I've seen in the past is sometimes the perfect becoming the enemy of the good. And so Mm -hmm. unless we can get it absolutely right, we're not going to make this kind of accelerated push to scale. And I think that's one of the reasons that we see so few examples in the world of getting to that kind of scale. That's an interesting point. Normally... Most many people I speak with, in, indeed, they, they, they want to make sure that the quality is there before trying to push for scalability. In your case, you're thinking, look, let's try with something that's good enough and and we can we can work on the quality subsequently. Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, you have to work on it in, in parallel, of course, but mm-hmm. I think there is this danger of letting the, again, the perfect be the enemy of the good and sort of ne- never going for that kind of right. scale. The reality of scaling anything up is it's messy and you're going to have problems and it's going to fail in different um, uh, parts. When I look at it from a political economy standpoint, Mm -hmm. if you think about a a massive scale up of this nature and getting it to a point where you're not only reaching everybody, but it's sustainable and it's, it's really effective, very high quality standard. It's going to take multiple political administrations. Very rarely can you do all that with one. Um, and as everybody knows, that there, the change in politics often changes public policy. So you need to get it to a point in your window of opportunity where it's irreversible. 
And that means you have to get it big enough so that there is a large enough number of people and constituents from parents to, you know, policymakers to politicians who are invested in it. And so I think um, when you look at it from a, a, a po political standpoint, um, pace matters, speed matters. And um, it's not that you take your eye off the ball in terms of quality, but you accept that it's going to be a work in progress. And because the political engagement is a necessity, isn't it? If you're going to achieve things at that scale. Yeah. I mean, for us, you know, we believe very much in, in government being central to this. Um, we think the, the large portion of finance for early childhood development, at least for most of the kinds of services, is going to come from public finance. And so the, the, the political leadership um, and the political advocacy for, for finance from the government policymakers themselves is an absolutely central condition for scale. Tell me a little bit about engaging with governments in general. In case somebody's listening to this and they're working in a specific country and they want to drive forward systemic change in their national territory, what are some of the key lessons that you're drawing from this? I think that one is government is a huge entity in any country, you know, thousands of people. So it's, it's really, it's, there's a tendency to think about government as sort of a homogenous entity, but like any institution of that size, it's not at all. It's filled up with people, with tons of different types of people with different interests. And, and in my experience, there are always people inside government who deeply want to do something for babies and toddlers and families. Um, mm -hmm. and, and a lot of the work is finding the people who just are committed to that, are passionate about it already. Um, and so we spend a lot of time just meeting people and talking um, yeah. and trying to understand wh where is the leadership already. Uh, a lot of times people think they're going to have to create the leadership. In our experience, it's already there and it just needs to be supported and, and augmented. So that's sort of the first uh, lesson. Mm -hmm. And the second one would be around ensuring that there is a diversity of leadership. Right, so you want it. You don't want it to be tied to a particular political party. You want it to be all the political parties. You don't want it to just be the national government. You want it to be the state and local government. You don't just want it to be the public sector. You want it to be the private sector and civil society. And so you're really trying to create a broad um, group of leaders who will all be uh, advocating for this in their own way. And then when you begin to find folks like this uh again the ones who just genuinely want to do this they want to do it for for whatever reason um but it, but it there's some there's just something inside them that moves them towards this issue it's really about helping them figure out the most practical way to to take action because as i said it's it's not that difficult in my opinion to convince people and oftentimes you don't need to convince them at all to do something It's more a matter of, okay, then given my context and given my situation, given the resources available, what can I do? And that's where we spend a ton of our time in these relationships is helping them explore different options, try things out, get to know peers in other parts of the world until they find ideas that are compelling enough to, to move forward in, in their own countries. I imagine some of the challenges also relate to getting different ministries to work with each other, right? I mean, if you're looking at early childhood development in, in a holistic manner and you're looking at nutrition and health and education and sports and I don't know, there's just so many different variables. And 
having these ministries talk to each other may not always come natural to them. Yeah, and I also don't think it's something we can make them do. I mean, the, there is this is another example where sometimes I think the perfect can be the enemy of the good. Um, so there's insistence on having um, all the ministries together and you know, a policy across all the sectors and somebody coordinating. Yeah. Once in a while that can happen. Um, uh, more often than not, what we look for is a good anchoring point to start. Um, and so I use the example of, of Cote d'Ivoire, which mm-hmm. is some work we've done with the, the Jacobs Foundation, yeah. um, the UBS Optimist Foundation. I know both uh, Sandro and Phyllis have been on, on the podcast and a number of others. In this case, you know, they already had done a bunch of work to put together a national nutrition plan. Right. Um, a large part of which is focused on exactly on the kids that we're all concerned about. And it was led out of the prime minister's office. So this is a good thing because it's, um, you know, coming from a a position of of high authority above the ministries, above the line ministries. And so our our thought there was, well, let's start there. You know, let's begin there and begin to incorporate what's possible in terms of a more expanded view of early childhood into a platform that's already across sectors that already exists, um, rather than trying to put together all the ministries under a different heading, a different platform. So again, we sacrificed a little bit of holistic view yeah. um, because that was what was available in the in the country. So if I'm starting, I'm always looking from a coordination point of view, either for a platform that already exists uh, or for a ministry that can be kind of the anchor or for the top authority to take the lead. And that's the best way, of course, to get um, coordination. Do you find many heads of state and governments are are keen to uh, to focus on early childhood development these days? I, I think more and more. So I, I, the region where I'm seeing the most uh, is probably in Latin America. Okay. Um, Michelle Bachelet, who was a former president of Chile, did a really wonderful job um, and has one of the most that like, Chile has one of the most holistic early childhood strategies that's you know been going on for a couple of years across all the ministries. Um, Juan Manuel Santos in Colombia, and there are a variety of other countries in the region where you see heads of state. In, in Sub-Saharan Africa, I see more of it around the nutrition element of early childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, so you see a, a bit more of, of that, a former president of Tanzania, the uh, vice president of, of Cote d'Ivoire and the prime minister, very, very focused on, on nutrition. Um, so I see kind of more and more taking it as a signature issue, just what aspect of it they focus on may vary. And that's why I said, I think that will continue to expand. But the question of, okay, I want to do this, how do I do it at major scale, at national scale, so that it has a, an impact? That, that's, that is the next frontier. That is the thing that we all need to be working towards and through um, if we really want to be uh, useful, in my opinion. What are you? Um, what are you most excited about as you're looking at the uh, next five or ten years? Well, let's say the next ten years as we're heading up to the Sustainable Development Goals, and you know, some of these goals are highly pertinent to early childhood. What um, What's most exciting for you, or disheartening actually as well? You know, what, what's this, what's your take on things? I think I'll focus on exciting, great, um, because you get plenty <laughs> of disheartening in the news every day, right? So I guess two things. One is. Just take this example of what's going on in Brazil. It's mm-hmm. really happening, right? It's really happening at a pretty massive scale. Um, there's no reason why things of that ilk can't happen, you know, in 50 countries 
uh, over the next 10 years uh, across different regions of the world. So I find that to be uh, incredibly exciting. So the practical implementation in real places, I think Cote d'Ivoire could be another one. I think there's real possibility in India. Um, I think you know there are parts of, of Europe that need to do more on this as well. So that's very exciting. And then the second is, and this is where a lot of our energy has been focused, you know, early childhood development has typically been thought of as pretty narrowly defined to the education, nutrition, maybe health sectors. Um, but we're doing more and more work to expand the range of, of constituents who think this is relevant to them and uh, working with urban planners, with mayors, with real estate developers, with architects and engineers, um, with people concerned with transportation. I think it will become even more explosive, even more energy when suddenly the, the, the range of people that would be in the you know, proverbial group photo right. uh, expand to folks that you wouldn't think of. And so I, I find that to be one of the most uh, compelling parts of our work today. You're always very creative on things. And there is one, uh, I believe it might be the Urban 95 initiative, or, but there, I remember you explained to me one of your, one of your programs about what would an urban landscape or a, a city center look like if you were a 95 centimeter tall three-year-old child? And it looks very different than, than for most policymakers who are <laughs> a little bit taller. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about that because I thought it was just such a creative approach to, to trying to empathize, I guess, and, and appreciate what children go through in these settings. And um, yeah. Yeah. No, so it is Urban 95. And okay. indeed it came about... Um, we're doing a bunch of work in kind of urban urban settings and kept having these conversations with engineers and architects. And I had this, this reflection that they were so much more precise um, in their, in their speech uh, uh, than, than we tended to be. Uh -huh. um, and we were having a difficult time kind of getting them to understand what we were about. We were using the language child-friendly cities and things like this. And it was, and so we went with this measurement, 95 centimeters, because it appealed to the kind of precision that they uh, seem to um, have in their minds. And it was amazing how quickly it, it changed the way they responded. They would kind of giggle first and then think about it and then begin to really engage. And so, yes, the, the initiative started a couple of years ago and it asked that question. If, if you could experience a city from 95 centimeters, what would you change? It asks to all sorts of different um, people involved in, in city planning and city making. Mm -hmm. um, it's active in more than 10 cities around the world where we're really trying to um, play this out. Um, and, you know, the, the notion would be, you know, today if you get people around the table to think about the next 10, 20 years of a city, they are going to talk about sustainability. You can guarantee it. So in our mind, five, 10, 15 years down, they will also talk about babies as a kind of key constituency, but also a good barometer for how the city's doing. And just to give you a couple of examples of kind of the, the, what this awakens in people, um, one of my favorite examples is the city of Tel Aviv. Mm -hmm. um, and it was the, a guy called Yoav, who was the, he is the um, head of parks and gardens. And so at the beginning, he, he thought, you know, this isn't really for me. Um, and he, he went on this tour of Copenhagen and, and learned about how sand and water were so important developmentally. 
Okay. And he had this this revelation that the the, the parks, gardens, playgrounds, etc., that he was creating um, were not using natural elements because it's much harder to to maintain. The maintenance cost is much higher. Um, but he had this reflection. Well, that's not it's not the right thing to do. It's not it's not that fair. And so he um, started piloting models immediately of how you can incorporate natural elements but make it easier for maintenance and now these things are all over all over the city and he then went even a bit further and said well there are some neighborhoods that just have no access to green space and so the last time i was there they had just finished destroying a parking lot um, <laughs> in one of these neighborhoods and replacing it with uh, a park a green area that was designed with families with kids um, so that they'd have uh, access to to nature nearby. And so it was amazing just to see how this one revelation changed his, his point of view. You know, another, another example, and I'll just share one last one after this, is in the city of Recife in Brazil. Okay. Um, and, and there, the, you know, the mayor was very involved and he said, I want every single department to have some indicators related to babies and toddlers. So if you're public transportation, um, if you are parks and gardens, if you are infrastructure, and we're going to have a meeting every Tuesday, you know, the Tuesday morning meeting where the heads of all the departments get together and they've got a report on how they're doing. And I thought that was a really unique way of, of incorporating this point of view into the city's management and all sorts of different things. Um, you know, how the bus system is organized in terms of the routing and how that mirrors the caregiver's routing or how comfortable they are for uh, women and children. I mean, it's just coming out of every part of the city. Then the last one um, fascinating is this issue of air quality. Mm -hmm. so air quality kept coming up when we asked this question, how would you experience the city from 95 centimeters? And I don't, I don't know if you know, but I think about 93% of the world's kids breathe air that is under the WHO standard today. And the exposure to dirty air doesn't just have an impact on you know, respiratory illness now, but also on your lung growth and your brain function in the long term. To add to that, the air is dirtier at 95 centimeters. It's, uh, and to add to that, babies and toddlers breathe about four times as frequently because they have shorter breaths as adults. So they're actually taking in more dirty air and they can't filter it as well. And so it's this huge problem. And so we recently decided to join a new uh, initiative called the Clean Air Fund that is working with cities around the world uh, and a number of other foundations to try and figure out how to improve the quality of air, in particular in places where babies and toddlers spend the most time. And this is an issue that I even felt a little bit uncomfortable getting into. It even felt a little bit out of scope for us at the beginning, but it came up so many times through Urban 95 that we said, well, we got to do something, but we don't really have the expertise. And that's why we joined forces with uh, the Children's Investment Fund Foundation, IKEA Foundation, and a number of others. But you can see how once you Kind of ask this question, it, it, it brings in all sorts of new stakeholders and new new ideas, and I find that to be a very exciting uh, prospect for this. Indeed, people. no, that is amazing, actually. And you're drawing a lot of lessons, obviously, from the Zero Ninety Five initiative. And the question I would have as a follow-on is, how do you ensure that all of these insights that you're drawing are uh, disseminated and made available to other cities, other stakeholders, irrespective of where they might be located, whatever continent they might be in. Is there a, a manual? Is there a repository of findings that a city mayor can, can tap into? Or how are you sharing all of these invaluable insights that you're gaining through the initiatives that you do on the ground? 
So we, I mean, we do do a lot of research and case studies and things of, of that nature about all the work. Um, we have a variety of different modalities of executive education where we actually bring people in so that they can learn in person and try to think about how it might be applicable to their own settings. And we are beginning to, to publish more on the on the topic. So we, we put out last year uh, a first version very much in test form of something called the Urban 95 Starter Kit, which you can find on our website, which had, uh, I don't know, about 100 ideas that had emerged thus far. Um, and we're working on the next iteration uh, now, which we, we hope to launch either later this year or early in 2020, which would be done um, digitally and, and hopefully have some sort of app component so that it can be updated with new ideas on a regular basis. But having said that, I, I do think that the the irony of people having so much more access through technology to information is it's much harder to get people to pay attention to information just by publishing it, just by putting it on the internet, because they're so overwhelmed with information. And so I don't think there's any replacement for that personal touch, for the personal relationship, and really trying to work through a problem with somebody and figure out what makes sense for them. And so in that sense, we do a lot more monitoring and organizing of our own network, and we staff in order to be able to nurture relationships. And one of the things I find interesting and quite frustrating sometimes about foundations is they want to play this knowledge brokering role or this technical assistance role and at the same time they want to get as much money out the door with as few people as possible and a lot of this other part of the work really requires people and so it's not that everyone has to do it but if you really want to to try and connect people and and support them with more than financial resources I think it needs to be a serious part of the the staffing plan and, and the hiring plan, frankly. And so we've had to adjust to that, and it's really changed the dynamics of, of the people in our team uh, over the past few years. And the number of relationships that you have to manage, both on the government side, on the key stakeholder side, uh, corporate side, unless you, you, you wear a red cape and, and happen to be allergic to kryptonite, I don't think you can do it all by yourself. No, no. I mean, everybody's got to do it. And, you know, we're key relationships are probably talking in the range of three to 500 um, uh, across the world. Um, and obviously this will be at very different levels. We don't engage that heavily with all of them, but it's, you know, it's a time intensive people intensive business, like every other business. And yeah. Some, sometimes I think we rely on the money too much. I understand. I understand. And tell me, so as you know, the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring people to be more philanthropic and act more sustainably and embrace social entrepreneurship. And I would ask you, if listeners forgot every single word that you and I have said over the last half hour, but they took away one salient point or word of wisdom, what's that key takeaway that you'd love them to uh, to keep in mind after they conclude this podcast? I think set goals that are far too big for you to reasonably achieve by yourself. Set goals that are far too big for you to achieve by yourself. One, because that's what's needed in the world. And two, it forces you into a collaborative mode, which is really important in philanthropy because it's not a given. If you have your own resources, you can just operate by yourself. It's sure. not the most productive thing to do. But I think setting these really ambitious goals 
helps push one into dreaming, but also into working with others more effectively. That's a great one. That's a very good one. If, uh, if any of the listeners here think, yes, it's great to hear Michael for 30 minutes, but actually I still have a lot of questions that haven't been answered in this podcast and I want to reach out to him. What's the best way of somebody who's listening to this to get a hold of you? Is it uh, through Twitter, LinkedIn, through the website? What do you recommend? I can do through Twitter for sure. I don't tend to tweet a lot, but I do retweet a lot. Okay. I do read them or through the website is fine as well. Okay, perfect. Well, just for our listeners to let you know, we will have a dedicated web page with episode notes on our website, which you can go to at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. I will make sure that we include dedicated links to some of the specific uh, research and initiatives that, that Michael's highlighted today. I will also distill the uh, salient points from today's conversation. You can also read a bit more about Michael and uh, and some details on how to get a hold of him through LinkedIn and his Twitter handle and all, and all of this. And before we wrap up, also, if you're kind enough to subscribe to the podcast, that would be very much appreciated. It makes a world of difference and it makes sure that um, enables us to reach a much broader audience. And Michael, very much looking forward to seeing you in person in the not too distant future. But in the meantime, I'm eternally grateful for, for you coming on board today and sharing your wisdom with us. I have learned a lot, as I always do when I speak with you, and I'm actually um, quite excited about some of these initiatives. I'm looking forward to finding out a little bit more about them as the, as the year progresses. Thanks so much for the invitation. No, no, it's my absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Do One Better podcast. If you want to find out more about our show, about our guests, additional links and resources, visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I dot org. And don't forget, success at the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring you to be more philanthropic, to think more about sustainability, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Hopefully, these stories will encourage you to take action and change the world around you for the better.